Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, hey, before we get started, we've had a really busy week on this podcast. Normally, we do one podcast a week. This week, we're doing three, or we've done three. This is the third. So in case you missed the last two, which we're we're calling them bonus episodes, uh, you should go check them out. One uh, that we posted on Sunday is, uh, we're calling it an emergency edition of the podcast where we... Uh, got together some meditation teachers to talk about uh, election stress. Everybody's freaking out about this election, and, and meditation may be something that could be useful. So that's one. And then the other on Monday we posted uh, as a bonus was uh, with Robin Roberts, who's the co-anchor of Good Morning America and uh, a daily meditator and just an awesome human being. So those are two bonus episodes. Um, go check them out. But not before you listen to this one. Uh, here we go. From ABC... This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, welcome back. My guest this week is one of my favorite human beings. So if you're expecting objectivity, you should download another podcast. Uh, Sabini Selassie is just get ready for somebody who's really smart about meditation practice, uh, about issues of uh, illness, uh, and about issues around uh, surrounding race, and whatever the hell else she wants to talk about. Um, Sabini? Thank you very much for coming in. Oh, really thank you, appreciate Dan. it. Very kind words. Thank you. Um, there's a lot more to say about you, uh, which we will get to. Uh, but I want to ask you the question I always ask everybody, which is how did you, how did you come to meditation? Well, I first came to meditation in high school, um, not Buddhist meditation. My brother, uh, I think I was about 15, he became what's colloquially known as a Hare Krishna. Wow. Yes. Okay. Wow. So, but the you guys were and you guys were Ethiopian immigrants, so that must have been a uh, like a that's a real combination of cultures there. Yeah, it was a mess. A mess. <laughs> Your parents freaked out. So yeah, we'd already been here. Uh, so we got here when I was about three, and so I was fifteen at the time. So you know, my parents had been here for a while, but nothing had prepared them for that. So yeah, so he became a Hare Krishna. How did that happen? Um, you know, I don't know actually how he came into contact with them. Probably like you know, jumping around in their robes and bells on the downtown street. somewhere. Yeah. D- this was DC. You, that's yeah. where you grew up, right? So we grew up in Washington, DC and there was kind of a big scene around the Krishnas then. So this huh. was the eighties, the mid eighties and, um, the hardcore punk rock scene in DC. There was this, um, kind of variation of it that was called uh, straight edge. Yeah. I remember that. Right. So they sure. were vegan and they yeah. didn't drink, didn't mm-hmm. do drugs. And a bunch of them were into Hare, Hare Krishna. Krishna. I didn't know that. Wow. So was your brother into the whole straight edge thing? You know, kind of, sort of on the edge. He was a little bit older. He's eight years older than me. So um, he wasn't so much in that scene, but kind of got connected to it. So he had a bunch of friends who were skinheads and, you know, musicians. And they had a temple out in Potomac, Maryland, where a a lot of people lived. And also the Indian community would come to those who, um, you know, were in the Krishna um, community. uh, lineage, but uh, they had this thing called the O Street Temple, which is an O Street in DuPont Circle, and that was sort of the hangout um, for all the cool kids. So I was not a cool kid at all; like I was not a part of that scene. But I would go with him, and so I started meditating by um, chanting Hare Krishna with mala beads, and quickly kind of realized that wasn't for me. Although I was still sort of would hang out with my brother. He moved to New York at some point. I went to actually stay in the temple with him there in Brooklyn, and. So I, I knew a lot about it, but I started doing my own research at that point and started looking into 
other Eastern philosophy and spirituality. And um, I went to kind of a hippie high school, alternative private school, and we had peace studies and um, East Asian studies. And I did a research paper on meditation and taught my class to meditate. I'm sure it was like <laughs> the worst meditation instruction ever because I had no idea what I was doing. But I was kind of interested, um, uh, but not really practicing. But you were, if I recall from just our personal conversations over the years, you were kind of a um, uh, a little bit of a rabble rouser as a little kid. I, didn't you tell me some story about like leading protests in your neighborhood yeah. or something like that? <laughs> yeah. So uh, my dad um, was... Uh, a leader in the Eritrean liberation movement. So when I was young, uh, probably about four, so 1974, when the revolution happened in Ethiopia, he went back, actually, and disappeared for and a few fought? years. Yes, so he was... Actually, like, picked up a gun and fight, fought. Yeah, he wasn't good at it, but yes, he was a guerrilla fighter, as were many of my cousins, which is not uncommon for Eritrean families. So I'm half Ethiopian, half Eritrean. So, yeah, a lot of my cousins on that side were fighters, and uh, my dad disappeared on us for a few years. Wow. Yeah. No warning or? No. He went back when the revolution happened because nobody knew at that point. You know, at that point, w- when there was word over here that the that Haile Selassie had been deposed, there was a lot of excitement because people thought something good was going to happen, and they didn't realize, you know, a, a nightmare of decades was about to happen. So... Uh, so he went there and then quickly had to flee Addis Ababa. You know, he had been part of the government um, for many years. He was the attorney general of Ethiopia and uh, secretary of the interior under Haile Selassie. Um, so he was wanted once wow. he got there. Um, so he fled and went back to Asmara, back to Eritrea, where he was from, and then went into the field, as it's called, and became a guerrilla fighter. How long? How long was he there? Yeah. You know, I you know I know I really should ask that. Um, I think it was about two and a half, three years. Okay, so, so not a vacation. No, yeah, not a vacation for my mom and us because she was now a single mom with three kids, one with a major disability, my sister. So it was really really rough on us. Uh, so, but when he came back, he was still involved with the movement, and um, uh, your mom I, took him back. She did. Um, you know that's a whole other story, but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a, it wasn't a great peacemaking. They're divorced now, okay. many years later. Um, so yeah, so I was sort of politicized young through him, and he would take us to rallies and meetings, and I would learn all the EPLF chants, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front. I would come back. We lived in a white neighborhood, middle class neighborhood, and I would sort of rally all the little white kids around and <laughs> make them chant, you know, "Long live EPLF" and <laughs> raise their fists in the air and. Yeah, it was a little ridiculous. That's kind of adorable. <laughs> yeah. So, so I took you on a pretty big detour there, but but so you so here's your brother. He's into the Hare Krishna movement, and you're you think there might be something to the meditation thing, but not the way they're doing it. So, where did you where did your research take you? Well, it took me into academics. So uh, I went away to college, to McGill University, and I majored in comparative religious studies, and I focused on Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, but I really didn't practice, um, which which is not uncommon for uh, academic religious studies people. So I'm getting that sense that I, I've met a bunch of people or, or read about a significant number of people who I was just actually reading about Jack Kerouac last night. Not an academic, but he was really interested in reading about Buddhism, but didn't practice. Yeah, yeah, and there was even sort of um, 
a poo-pooing among scholars of, you know, you don't mix practice and scholarly work. So uh, Don't get high on your own supply? Maybe, <laughs> yeah. Um, huh. that, that you can't have objectivity, right, if, you, if you're actually practicing, which was not the case. At, right. Would in, exercise physiologists say that, though? It's ridiculous, yeah. Okay. And, and that, what's crazy is there's still some scholars and still some departments that lean heavily that way. McGill was not like that. Actually, my advisor was a practitioner, but um, for whatever reason, I think because I was stuck in my head because I was busy partying and doing drugs and because I was actually also very politically involved in college. Um, I wasn't practicing. I was just studying this stuff. And I really didn't come to practice until after I graduated. So I started meditating um, really uh, when I moved to San Francisco after college. And you were doing social justice work? Uh, I was doing social service, social justice work. So I was, um, I got involved in that in college um, on a volunteer level. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I started working for uh, um, uh, an after school program for kids in a pretty messed up neighborhood, the Tenderloin. Yeah, the Tenderloin, although that's getting a little bit gentrified now, right? Yeah, everything. Yeah, San Francisco. So when you started to meditate, what were you doing? Um, I, uh, I started going to the Zen Center of San Francisco, which did not work for me. Um, sort of the, the strictness and, uh, really the anonymity I felt there wasn't a lot of warmth and it might be because I wasn't finding the right kind of entry points. Um, so I was really just kind of dabbling on my own, reading a lot, trying to practice at home. And then I moved to New York, uh, when I was 25 and started going to, all the different centers that were around then. Um, So I think doing what a lot of people do, just sort of kind of hopping and chopping um, meditation practices. So I did the first two levels of training at Chambala, and I went to a couple of different Zen centers. Um, Then in uh, probably around 2006, 2007, I did my first 10-day retreat, a Gwenka retreat, Mm -hmm. which was really powerful. Um, you know, I, I, it was kind of mind-blowing for me in terms of what I saw and what I experienced. Uh, but I didn't really gel with the Guenca groups and communities back in New York. Um, so I kept doing kind of looking around. And I was really interested in Charlotte Joko Beck at that point. She had a couple of books out. She was a student of Maizumi Roshi and a Dharma heir. So he he, um, sanctioned her to teach. So she was a Zen teacher. She's a Zen teacher based in San Diego and founded a school of Zen called Ordinary Mind. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. So Barry Majid, who lives in New York City, is a psychoanalyst. He had a little community here. Um, So I wandered into that and I liked it, and so it stuck. So he was my first teacher, really, and I was a really bad student. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean by that? Everybody thinks they're a bad student. Well, you know, I was in my mid-20s. I was partying a lot still and really just kind of chasing boys. And um, I I would go to sittings. Back then, um, the sittings were in his office, his therapy office. So, um, you know, it was very informal in a lot of ways. It was Saturday mornings. And he would lock. Not the best time Saturday morning for a mid-20s Yeah, exactly. So 10 o'clock in the morning. And he would lock the door exactly at 10. (laughs) And, you know, more than a few times, I was kind of hungover, wandering down the hallway. And I would hear the door click. And I'd have to, like, turn around and kind of do a Buddhist walk of shame back home. (laughs) Um, you sent me some a very sort of funny and but uh, but poignant in some ways a li- list of bullet points about your uh, life, uh, some of which I already knew. Um, 
uh, so you said uh, you were a really bad Dharma student, and then and then there was something that happened that made you a really good Dharma student. Can you talk about what that was? Yeah, so you know, I practiced with um, Barry for a few years, and then I um, ended up moving to West Africa. Um, my boyfriend at the time worked for the UN, and so I got a job working in the refugee camps in Guinea. And while I was there, I discovered a lump in my left breast. And and you're um, how old? At that point, I was twenty. No, I was thirty. How old was I? Thirty-three or thirty-four? Yeah. Were you terrified? I was, and I got it checked out in Guinea, and they said it was fine. And that, you know, it, it was just a, a cyst or, you know, an abnormal growth, but it was benign. Um, I wanted to get a second opinion, so my boyfriend at the time was Danish, so we were in Denmark and got it checked again. They told me the same thing. Mm. Moved back to the States. By this point, we had broken up, and... Um, you know, things just didn't seem right. It, the mass was starting to grow and the breast was starting to change. So I went and got it checked out again and it was stage three breast cancer. Stage three. Yeah. So 34 years old and, um, you know, single and uh, living in D.C., which I I had returned to because we had split up, but really wasn't my home it was anymore. You know, I hadn't lived there since I was in high school and really disoriented, and uh, there was no ordinary mind school in D.C., uh, and I had already started looking for a sangha when I first got there. And Let's just define sangha for those who don't oh, know. Oh, right. It's so just a, like a community. Buddhist community. Yeah. 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 So, um, so I started in sitting with the Insight Meditation Community of Washington. Is that Tara Brock? That's Tara Brock. Yeah. So uh, when I got the diagnosis, I was already part of that community. And, uh, yeah, and my life turned upside down, but my practice really deepened. Yeah. I mean, this is where the rubber hits the road. Really, yeah. So, okay, I have a million questions, but what what was the course of treatment, like A, and B, you can take this in whatever order you want, and B, how did it, how exactly did it deepen your practice? Well, you know, initially I didn't do um, any um, Western allopathic medicine, so for the first uh, while, I was doing um, uh, sort of alternative therapies. No chemo, radiation, lumpectomy? I didn't do chemo, radiation. You know, I was getting a lot of conflicting opinions. Some surgeons are saying because of the way the, the tumor had kind of um, pulled the breast, they couldn't really do a clean mastectomy. Um, so they wanted to... Uh, some said they wanted to treat me with radiation first. Some said they wanted to treat me with chemo first, see if they could shrink it. Um, so I started doing natural therapies, which were very intensive. I actually went part-time at work, and they were really supportive about that. I was working in inter international development at the time um, and focused all my energies on that and practicing a lot. So deep in my practice in the sense that I was um, meditating a lot, trying to do retreats, um, taking care of myself. And then pretty soon after that, uh, I moved to New York and then started pursuing um, treatment. And I found this very zany, wacky oncologist who's amazing and probably saved my life, who did um, a form of treatment that's really uncommon for breast cancer. It's really uncommon for most cancers called um, chemo perfusion, where they actually flood the area with chemo. And he was able to shrink the tumor um, doing that. And then I did a regular course of chemo very, very long, um, and then radiation. And 
I can only imagine trying to meditate while you're suffused with nausea and feeling weak. And did you do a lot of it lying down? Um, I did do a, a fair amount of practice lying down. Um, yes, and the, the chemo perfusion is very caustic treatment. So I actually had pain in the tissue itself, oh, wow. um, which extended to the back because I had, uh, I had um, uh, cancer in the lymph node under my left arm as well. So the perfusion um, really affected that whole left upper area. So, yeah, there was a lot of pain. Um, there was a lot of fear and kind of just trauma. Uh, and, yeah, I've had to practice with all of it. Yeah, I was, I was projecting there, uh, you know, what I would be feeling in that situation. And so fear and anger would be the two biggies. Yeah, you know, the anger, uh, I'll tell you, a really good um, kind of prequel for cancer is working in refugee camps. It was kind of hard to take my pain too personally and too seriously. That helped me put things in perspective. You know, I, I, I had never um, really, although I, I come from Africa, I'd traveled in Africa and seen a lot of different experiences having traveled around the world um, a fair bit, uh, I, nothing had prepared me for kind of just the insanity of a refugee camp. Mm -hmm. And um, this was in 2002, 2003, so we were on the border of Liberia, um, and Cote d'Ivoire, so both were blowing up at that time. And, you know, within days, tens of thousands of people would be on the border, um, traumatized, homeless, uh, weary. I was working specifically in a program for uh, um, unaccompanied minors or separated children, which is just, you know, a heartbreaking yes. yeah. uh, reality. So I, the, the anger part wasn't as strong for me because I, 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 of course I would have these sentiments, especially when I would see somebody like smoking cigarettes and eating cheeseburgers and, you know, perfectly healthy as far as I knew. You know, I didn't know anything about them, but even some of the people in my life and didn't have cancer and me who meditates and does yoga and eats well, um, you know, just faced with this harsh reality. But that kind of why me, um, I think I quickly replaced that with why not me. You know, so that I, I mean, that's I can imagine a huge service that was done for you by by you in some ways, and the fact that by uh, um, by dint of the fact that you had chosen to live a life of service in this way. But I'm curious about the meditation. So you 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 kind of tripled down on that. Was it useful? Because you know, I would imagine a lot of people listening to this practice meditation for. You know, to be more focused, to have a little bit more calm in their life, to not be so yanked around by their emotions, et cetera, et cetera. But this is an entirely different kettle of fish. So did it work in this in in that crucible? Yes. I mean, it was useful um, in that it gave me tools to recognize what was coming up when I had fear or panic or um, you know, when I was spinning out in what if, what if, what if, and and really, I, I got really sick later on, um, uh, and and there was a lot of fear about whether I was going to make it or not, and and so that that. What do you mean by really sick? Because it sounds to me like stage three breast cancer is really sick. Well, you know, I had a really strange turn of events where, like, I things happened that um, you know weren't related necessarily to the cancer. So, for example, I had this bout of nausea at one point, um, not because of chemo. I hadn't actually started chemo yet because of um, some other treatments they had given me. And um, 
I, I was throwing up and it led to uh, a twist in my intestine. So I had a twisted intestine and was hospitalized um, with kidney failure because they hadn't figured out what was going on because they thought it was just the cancer, but it was all these other things. So, you know, a long, a long story. Um, and in summary, I was, I was really, really ill. And they were really scared to operate on me because they didn't know if I would, could survive the operation. And luckily, my intestine untwisted naturally. Um, but, uh, you know, I was lying in bed in pain, really scared. And um, at those times, I, I could um, be with the experience um, and also not just meditation, but really the Dharma practice of so the Dharma being the teachings of the Buddha, the, the Dharma practice kind of allowing me to put things in perspective. What do you mean by that? What's it, how do you Specifically, what do you mean? What is the difference between the meditation and the Dharma practice that you're referring to? Well, I think the meditation helped me, um, you know, sort of not project the pain into the future. So if I was having pain, to actually be with the sensation of it and and not um, do what we normally do, which is actually feel something that's not happening. You know, we sort of panic and then we think we can't handle the pain. Mm -hmm. You know, stress is really um, a stressor that we think we can't uh, handle. Um, so to really be with the sensations and sometimes need medication. But, you know, when I could press the button and a nurse would come and give me more medication, I could also appreciate the fact that I had medication. You know, I, I, I distinctly remember being in the hospital bed, and uh, this was the time when Darfur was blowing up. And I, I had seen an image in the New York Times of this mother um, who was already emaciated herself holding her dying child and just imagining the pain that they'd been in and, you know, realizing I had this little pain button that would bring this very kind being with drugs to help me alleviate it. So it was it was partly um, actually being with the true sensations, not projecting um, to something that wasn't happening, um, but also just the appreciation and gratitude for what I had in that moment. And the latter was the result, you think, from from learning about the teachings of the Buddha generally as opposed to doing the specific uh, meditation practices? Yeah, because I think that um, the teachings, uh, the sort of larger teachings do teach us a lot about um, gratitude and perspective and, you know, the five daily recollections, which um, is chanted in, in most Buddhist countries and almost daily by a lot of people. What are they? Because I won't remember. They're that uh, I will um, age. I have not gone beyond aging. I will grow ill. I have not gone beyond illness. I will die. I have not gone beyond death. Everything that I have that is dear to me, I will lose, and I am subject to karma. It's a little dark. <laughs> it's it's dark only if um, you only want the positive side of the equation. Right, puppies and and uh, skittles. You yeah, know, like if, you, and if you only want sunshine, you're you're going to be in for some serious disappointment. Yeah, every every night. <laughs> <laughs> When the sun sets, you know, yeah. and just being able to to hold all that, and um, you know, that's not to say we don't want to alleviate the suffering that's out there and and help people who um, can be helped, but to just put our own lives in perspective and realize that it's not always going to be up. Sometimes it's going to be down. Indeed. Um, so, what? Just to back up for a second, what? Because people like to hear this, I think. Um, what kind of meditation? What what when you sat on the cushion? What was your meditation? 
And I guess you were still practicing in the original mind. Well, actually, by now you had moved into the insight meditation mm-hmm. uh, world. What what kind of meditation were you doing when the when your butt hit the cushion? Yeah, at that point, um, I was doing a lot of metta or loving kindness practice. Um, uh, a teacher had recommended that I make that a big part of my practice. So, for months and months, I was only sending loving kindness and wishes of well-being to myself. Just yourself? Just to myself. And and I would start my practice and really, you know, spend maybe half the time doing that, um, which is also a concentration practice. Yeah. So you, uh, the mind gets pretty sharp. Right. And then I would be with, um, starting with the breath, be with the sensations of the body. Starting with the breath. Okay. So j- uh, you're feeling whatever comes up in your body, and then when you get lost, start again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, within that, of course, noticing what's happening in the mind. I wasn't doing a lot of uh, sort of mindfulness of mind or emotions right then because um, my my thoughts and emotions were all over the place. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, really sticking with the body as being in the present moment. At, at that point, um, you know, when I was really going through rough treatment, I was future tripping a lot. Just uh, the, the, there's a great word in Buddhism, which is prapancha, which is the imperialistic tendency of mind, where you take a data point in the current moment and just project out into the future. So I'm having this pain from this treatment. This is going to get worse and worse and worse. I can't handle this. I'm going to die. Right. Yeah. That was like every 10 minutes for me, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised it wasn't every 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, d- d- a huge part of the Dharma or the Buddhist teachings is about uh, getting you to not have such a an attachment to your body, mm. you know, because this is a temporary vessel and and definitely fragile and um, you know rotting. Um, so, what did was that useful? Um, yes and no. You know, I think that I have the propensity to be stuck in my head. Um, I'm kind of intellectually oriented and we're surrounded by, especially my dad, but people around me were that way. And so I actually needed to kind of connect with the body more. Um, So uh, in a way, yes, it's helpful to kind of know the impermanence of the body and, and know that this is, like you said, a temporary vessel. But in the actual experience of the body, I actually needed to connect with the body more. Right. Right. Yeah. But would it be useful not to take it so personally? I mean, because the point is this body isn't yours, you know? And so if you're experiencing things in your body that you don't like, if you're not, if you don't identify it as you, it doesn't feel so insulting in some ways. Yeah, that's very true. And I think when you connect to the body in a deeper way, um, it doesn't feel so personal. You know, and, and, and that's the, the benefit of longer retreat and um, deeper practice, but you really start to feel all the energetic realities of this body that, you know, you can't really put into words anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think you can even understand it on a level, on some intellectual levels, like how connected do you think most of us feel to our pancreas or the microbiome, which is something my wife studies, uh, which, you know, trillions, I'm going to get this wrong, but trillions of little life forms in our gut uh, that are not you, but uh, without those life forms, you would have trouble surviving. Like they, they perform a lot of useful things, uh, uh, services for your body. 
But so it's like a or if you were to cl- when you clip your fingernails or is, what is that part of you that's gone or if you were to lose a leg, um, how far would you have to cut in order uh, to until you're not you anymore? So you can kind of understand this right. intellectually, yeah. but that is like. Uh, kind of intellectual Chinese food in a way because you get you forget it very right, quickly. Right. Um, your situation entirely different, mm. entirely different. Mm. Um, so, so you ended up pulling out of this. I did. Um, so uh, the treatments worked, and I was um, deemed cancer free. Um, some. How many years later? that the course of treatment took me about two years. So with my kind of alternative treatment, it was about two and a half years, that, that leg of it. And then about five years later, I was re-diagnosed with cancer again, stage four. So uh, I had come back in the right breast this time and um, in the bone, my chest bone. So this, at this point, you're in your late 30s? I'm in my late 30s and uh, metastatic cancer, yeah. And... In between the, if I got if I got the timeline right, in the interregnum there, you met Freddie. I did. I met my husband, um, and uh, I really uh, because I've been deepening my practice so much, I had started to study to become a, a teacher. So this was before I met you because you were the executive director at the New York uh, Insight Meditation Center. So this is when the second bout round of cancer hit, this was before that job? Yeah, I was working at New York Insight, but I wasn't yet the executive director. Okay. So the second round comes and uh, metastatic. Uh, So I I think we all know what that means, that it's spread, but how how far had it it spread? It spread into the bone and lymph nodes and uh, the breast. So it hadn't left kind of my upper body, but, uh, you know, once you're metastatic, they they consider you um, to have cancer for life. Uh, so how did you take that news? Uh, not well. Um, <laughs> no, I, yeah, does anybody was, take it well? You know, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it was, in some ways, it was more devastating because I, I it, it felt like, you know, this second knock to the head. Um, that, again, it's like I need this, like I need a hole in the head after what I'd been through. But um Luckily, they they didn't want to do chemo. They only did very high dose, but only radiation, um, which is exhausting and and not easy in itself. But it's it's um, much easier than doing both, obviously. Um, and in a lot of ways, because I was uh, had been practicing so much and and really deeply, um, I really felt like I could I could handle it. You know, I whatever was going to happen, that I was going to be able to meet it. So in the space between the first round of cancer and the, was it five years later, um, you had been doing a significant amount of practice. And so your mind state was, do you think, significantly different um, as you met the second wave? Yeah, definitely. And and also because of the first experience, you know, there's, there's some truth to that quote from Nietzsche that everybody misuses something like, you know, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Um, it's true. Just that, that the wisdom and kind of um, spiritual maturity that came out of getting through that experience um, in a spiritually mature way was really empowering. But on this one, was it, it seems to me, again, I'm projecting, I can't help it, um, 
a little scarier in that they're, they, it seems like they're saying there's no back door. You know, on the first one, it was bad, but they declared you cancer-free. This time they're coming to you and saying it's terminal. Yes. Or chronic. I don't know what the right, right word is. Yeah, I is. don't know what the right word is either. And um, I'm, I'm, I like to sort of throw skepticism in around statistics. And just um, I think at some point I made a decision that I was going to be on, you know, sort of the positive side of that statistic. What was the statistic? Uh, Just whatever statistics exist about the rate of survival for metastatic breast cancer. And they weren't good. They weren't good. But, you know, I I just sort of asked myself, well, why why can't I be in kind of, you know, I meditate, I take care of myself, I eat well. Like, why wouldn't I be in the 10 percent or whatever it is of the positive side of that statistic? And as it turns out, you were. I was until I got diagnosed again. <laughs> right, which was about a year ago. A year ago, yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember getting the email. Yeah. Um, what was the diagnosis the third time? So the third time, it had returned to the left breast. It was in the left lymph nodes. It was in the lungs. It was in the lung lymph nodes, and it was in bones. So it really, really spread. Yeah. And, yeah, and that, I mean, you know, in some ways, of course, I was devastated and in tears um, receiving the diagnosis. But um, I also kind of had to laugh. I mean, it was just ridiculous. It's like, oh, maybe every five years I get cancer now. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a great team. um, And, uh, again, they didn't want to do chemo. This time they didn't want to do radiation either. So they put me on hormone therapy, and I doubled down on the natural treatments as well. Um, really took care of myself, basically took um, the fall and winter off. And um, through... Last fall and last winter. So as we record this, it's September. Right, a year later. And um, had some wonderful friends raise funds for me so that we could kind of do that. Freddie took time off to take care of me as well. And uh, amazingly, last December, I got a PET scan back that um, I still had cancer in my body, but unbelievable um, the changes in terms of not only the size of uh, the spots and tumors, but also the intensity. What do your doctors think is going on there? Um, And what do you think is going on there? You know, it depends who you talk to. (laughs) If you talk to my oncologist, it's just the hormone treatment working. Um, If you talk to my naturopath, it's everything. Um, It's my diet. It's, uh, you know, not... um, having too much stress for the past year, really taking it a lot easier um, on myself, but also in, in what I'm doing. Um, and uh, and I think if you talk to my Dharma teachers and, and from my perspective, um, there's also something inexplicable that's, that happens to all of us, you know. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, 
families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So what is the prognosis now? Well, I have a PET scan on Thursday, so I'll know more next week. But uh, everything looks okay right now as far as my tumor markers. Um, so tumor markers are a blood test. They're not uh, the most reliable in terms of exactly what's going on, but they've been going down and down steadily even since December. Well, you said you used the phrase, everything looks okay. Like, you look more than okay. You look <laughs> phenomenal. So nobody would guess that you were dealing with illness, never mind something this serious. Yeah. So um, you're clearly doing something right. I, I take good care of myself. Um, you know, I try and eat really well. I try and obviously meditate um, and um, take my life a little, probably a lot more easy than the average New Yorker. Yeah. Um, and the way that I used to function in the city. Well, what is your practice like now? So my meditation practice, um, I do first thing in the morning. And I sit from anywhere, depending on my day, anywhere from 20 to 45 minutes. Um, I do some chanting. Um, I do uh, a sitting practice that usually depends on the day, what's needed. If I'm really feeling scattered, I might do some kind of concentration or um, gathering practices. Usually the breath um, is a good one for me. Um, And then what I mostly like to do is open awareness. Just to find that. So just really being uh, mindful, aware, and with whatever is arising. So noticing changing phenomena, noticing um, what comes in and out of my perception. And um, so that could be thoughts, it could be sensations, could be sounds. And, and I, I like to do that practice because that's what I carry with me into the day. Um, so the rest of my practice is daily practice of just, you know, really checking in with the body, checking in with my awareness moment to moment as much as possible, which is not all that much, but more than <laughs> it used to be. <laughs> and you have done a lot of retreats, too. In the, um, I know you, last time or one of the last conversations we had on the phone, you, were, you had just come back from South Africa where you had done a pretty lengthy retreat with your husband. Yes. I think you were telling me you kind of wanted to kill him because he was <laughs> snoring or something like that. Yeah, I was calling him. He doesn't know this, so now if he listens to this, he'll know. But I was calling him Fidgety McFidget <laughs> in my head and in the interviews. Um, yeah, we actually shared a room. Bad idea. How was that a good in idea? silence. It was amazing. It was really? a really incredible experience, yeah. Except for the fidgeting. Yeah, that was in the hall. Oh, like. I see, I see. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, I did a month long in South Africa. Uh, my teachers have a hermitage there. So. Who are your teachers? My teachers are Tanisara and Kitisaro. They are um, they have Pali names, but they're uh, Westerners. So Kitisaro is from Tennessee, and Tanisara is from London. And they were both uh, monastics. So and uh, Kitisaro was a monk, and Tanisara was a nun um, with Ajahn Chah, who was a Thai forest monk. Um, Widely regarded as a master. Yeah. So they both studied with him, and after about, I think, 15 years, they fell in love and left the monastery and got married and disrobed. (laughs) (laughs) The widest sense of that word. Um, 
what, now that you've walked us through this really harrowing health odyssey that you've been on, what, what do you think are the lessons for the rest of us? Um, that's a good question. You know, I love this teaching um, of the Buddha about the eight worldly winds. Do you know that one? No. So I don't know anything. So. You know a lot, mm. Dan. Um, <clears throat> eight worldly winds. Oh, let me forget them now. Okay. Let's see if I can remember them. Um, <laughs> I have a phone in my pocket. We could Google <laughs> yeah, we could it. Look yeah. it up. Um, pleasure and pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, gain and loss. Fame and. Fame and. Disrepute. Ill, Ill yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy Victorian translation and um, and praise and blame. Praise and blame. Yeah. Okay. I knew. I, I yeah. had heard of these. Yes. So you know, just our tendency to want one side of that equation. And oh yeah. Yeah. And and how when the other side shows up, we think it's a mistake. Mm-hmm. We think there's something going wrong. And it's that sort of question that we can ask ourselves, like, why not me? Uh, in any moment, and, and this can happen to, to any of us. You know, it can happen to us, it could happen to our children, it could happen to our loved ones. Not only that, it will happen. It will happen. Um, it might, you know, I hope that most people I know don't have to experience cancer or um, uh, grave illness like that before their, their very old age, but um, something will happen. You know, that side of the equation hits us every single day, and it's incredible. I mean, I'm telling myself this as I'm speaking to you, but it's incredible how much we, every time it shows up, you know, whether it's a blister on our foot or um, a head cold um, or somebody, you know, yelling at us and blaming us for something that, you know, we, we didn't feel we did wrong, we think it's a mistake. We think this should not be happening. But does that still happen with you like you, uh, given I mean, you you've gotten this repeated series of jolts of perspective so do you no longer sweat the small stuff it a lot less so you blisters know, you can handle blisters if you bring freddie in here he might have a different story to tell you <laughs> <laughs> he will have a different story to tell you um but you know i i think i'm able to kind of Definitely with the big stuff, talk myself off the ledge and, and just realize, you know, this is just part of life. And and more and more with the, the small stuffs as well. Yeah. we People really don't like talking about this stuff. No. Yeah, it's not comfortable. Um, it's It's not pleasant in a lot of ways. And that's, you know, a fundamental teaching of meditation, right, is, is that second foundation of mindfulness to just be aware of pleasant, unpleasant. And, and in some ways, a lot of practice, I think, is learning to tolerate mostly the unpleasant because we like the pleasant um, and just kind of growing realistic about life. Realistic about life. There's a way in which that phrase could be ignored because it, cause it, it sounded improvised, but that is it. I mean, the truth is nobody gets out of here alive. No. And nobody gets out of here without um, sorrow and loss, and and that's not a bad thing. I love this um, um, uh, saying from Charlotte Joko Beck. I read once. She said, um, "Joy is whatever is happening minus our opinion of it." Yeah, you, that used to be your email tag. Yeah, and and she's making the distinction between 
joy and happiness. So happiness and unhappiness happen, you know, throughout the day. We can have moments of unhappiness or happiness, but joy is something different. What? Yeah. How's it different? Joy is um, is is not about pleasant unpleasant. Joy is about an experience of freedom with regardless what's happening. So you know, I could be in that sick bed and have gratitude for pain reliever and gratitude for my life and all the loved ones um, so I can still have that pain and and have that feeling of joy or freedom. You said before that, you know, nobody gets out without sorrow, etc. But, you know, wasn't the Buddha advertising an escape from sorrow, lamentation, and blah, blah, blah? Wasn't he saying nirvana, enlightenment, liberation, awakening, the island, freedom, the beyond the hard to see, whatever, all those names, mm-hmm. was a way out of this? Um, yes, and he's also um, purportedly um, wept or was sorrowful when his two greatest students died. Um, so it's, I don't, again, you know, this is semantics here, but it's it's not that we don't have happiness and unhappiness. It's that we can be with both with a measure of ease. Our our mutual friend Mark Epstein has said that it may be a little bit like being punched in the face when you're on heroin. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know if Mark knows that experience. (laughs) No, I think he was theorizing, I think, just based on my um, acquaintance with him. Uh, Let me ask you, uh, there are so many things I I would like to talk to you about, but I'm I'm sensitive to your time, but... um, the other area of focus for you, and something we've talked about quite a bit, is race. Um, I don't know. I don't have any. I have a million. I, I, I'm sure I will have specific questions, but let me just throw that out there. What What's on your mind these days when I use that word? Well, um, <clears throat> I'm a black woman, which you can't tell if um, this is only audio um, necessarily by my accent. My my cousin's uh, boyfriend yesterday, or the other day, told me I sounded like a California white girl. So, <laughs> well, um, one one could theorize based on what we we're t- saying about your Ethiopian slash Eritrean extraction, but yes, right. Oh, right, exactly. Yeah, good point, Dan. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, what is a black woman supposed to sound sound like? Well, that that's a good question too, um, and and could bring up uh, issues around. Uh, unconscious bias, which is one of the things I'm really interested in around race right now. Um, so this is a big discussion in Buddhist communities and Western Buddhist communities right now because they tend to be um, the convert communities, obviously not the Asian immigrant ones, mm-hmm. but um, they tend to be very white and um, upper middle class generally. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been and, on enough retreats to see that myself. Yeah. And, and there is a, um, you know, a desire to kind of be more inclusive. I, I can tell you the number of years I was practicing, not only being often the youngest person in the room, but as my friend La says, I was the only person of color besides the Buddha in the <laughs> room. And, um, and I, I really didn't even realize, I was so used to being in white spaces all the time, I didn't even realize the level of discomfort that I had, mm. the sort of underlying um, uh there, there is, um, you know, has been documented that uh, people of color in white spaces uh, operate with sort of this threat response, um, that there's this uh, uh, 
often validated feeling that um, they will be experienced in a certain way, so they often underperform or mm. um, behave in particular ways that limit them. Um, so if we're talking about freedom and ease, that that's not happening in these white spaces. And, and you know, from, from the side of the white communities, so we're talking about, again, Buddhist communities here, but we could sort of expand that to the larger society. There's unconscious bias happening. Um, and to me, these sort of subtle aspects of the unconscious mind are so, they're just excellent topics for Buddhists to explore because that's what we do. We study the mind. Um, but there's a resistance to really talking about it. Um, a resistance from who? A resistance from a lot of uh, white meditators who um, are uncomfortable talking about issues of identity, talking about issues of um, race and whiteness, and particularly of racism and unconscious bias, white privilege. Um, because, you know, we all, uh, it, it's not cool to be a racist anymore, I mean, in most places. No. Um, uh, but there's a sort of a new order of racism that is this implicit bias and unconscious bias that doesn't really um, get talked about because pe- nobody wants to be called a racist. Nobody wants to really look at the ways in which they might stereotype people or make assumptions, um, have fears, uh, have judgments about people based on the color of their skin. It's hard. that It's hard because there's almost, the, the taboo against racism is just so justifiably severe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a line from Stephen Batchelor, I'm going to mangle it, but the, the great Buddhist writer, Stephen Batchelor, who says something to the effect of, you know, if you look into your own mind, you're going to see a rapist and a killer mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. You're going to see a racist too. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody wants to see it, mm-hmm. but you're going to, if you're willing to look, you'll see it. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean it'll arise and pass just like everything else, but you have to be willing to acknowledge it's there. I'm surprised, therefore, that there's so much resistance among these Buddhists, given that that's what we're in the business of looking. Yeah, well, I think that um, there's a real, especially among Buddhists, you know, these ideals of kindness and compassion, um, there can be a bypassing of anything that's sort of negative. Um, that's a great term, spiritual bypass. You were the first person I ever heard this term from. Oh, okay. That, that, that you, so it's, it's like we believe that practice is enough. So we don't have to work on our crap. We don't have to uh, really examine our behavior or attitudes or uh, 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 subconscious conclusions about people of other races and ethnicities because we're sending love and kindness. Yeah. Yeah, so spiritual bypassing was coined by John Wellwood in the 80s to describe kind of this tendency, especially among Western practitioners, um, to not deal with negative emotions, Mm. um, to bypass sort of anger and depression and um, rage and emotions that they didn't want to feel and just uh, kind of prematurely transcend them. But that just seems to me to be like a complete incomplete contradiction with the thrust of the of the Dharma, just to look at everything. Uh, It is. um, And I think it is particularly uh, this Western phenomena because we can, you know, the Dharma is vast. There's so many teachings and we can pick and choose. So that transcendent stuff looks pretty good. Like I want to get there. And so you can ignore looking at everything if you just want to get to that peace and stillness. And that was happening a lot. And and that was um, remedied somewhat or addressed through all the psychological work in this marriage um, of 
Western psychology and Buddhist psychology, and Mark has done a lot of work around that as well, and one of the leaders in sort of seeing, um, you know, where we might need a different approach um, to actually look at our stuff and not bypass it. Jack Cornfield as well. Yeah, so, but this um, tendency for what um, actually a friend of Brian Lesage, who's a, a teacher. Uh, I'm taking his course right now. Brian's running a oh, course great. through, uh, the, which I highly recommend if anybody's interested. The Barry, B-A-R-R-E, that's the name of a town in Massachusetts, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. And Brian is running a course, which is, it's it's an online course. Um, I th- They're offering it right now. It's too late to sign up for it, but they'll probably offer it again, called Identity, Not Self, and Awakening. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a mouthful. Uh, but it's all about uh, looking at this stuff through the lens of Buddhism. Right. Yeah, and, and Brian and I sort of um, uh, kind of hybrided this term cultural spiritual bypassing. Mm. We're going to teach a course at BCBS on that um, to look at, okay, so we psychologically bypass maybe anger and we don't want to deal with it, so we just let go, but we actually have just repressed it. And I met plenty of passive-aggressive Buddhists <laughs> over the years to to recognize that that's something that people can do. You know, they can sort of say, you know, I just want to be peaceful. I'm not going to look at that. But we do, we can do the same thing around cultural issues. You know, we can sort of have all of these tendencies that we just don't want to look at. We want to go straight to loving kindness and oneness and interdependence and um, the Buddha nature and not realize that, you know, we sort of get tense when we're walking down the street and um, a young black man with a hoodie is walking past us. Yep. And not to be able to acknowledge that is is not looking at that stuff. So so what can we do about it? I, mean, I don't I don't want to hold myself up in any way as some sort of uh, um, uh, example or exemplar here. Um, uh, you know, I'm willing to talk. I'm not afraid to look at it or talk about it. But I'm sure there are lots of ways that unconscious bias is working in my life because it is unconscious. Mm-hmm. So what can we do to A, root it out? Uh, well, what can we do to root it out and be, be better? Well, um, I think that one is to talk about it. Um, and, you know, it's not only around race. It's around all sorts of issues. There are um, these wonderful... Sexism. Sec- gender, yeah. sexuality, mm-hmm. size. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been educating myself recently about fat phobia, which I really, like, didn't recognize in myself for for a long time. I'm ashamed to say that it's only through actually um, actually a number of students who have been pointing things out to me and posting articles on Facebook that I'm I'm realizing kind of the size judgments, the size bias that I that I create and um, and so, you know, part of it is just educating ourselves, being aware, having conversations. And then I think s- a lot of it um, in real time is is learning to catch it. And that's where meditation practice and this conversation about the mind that, you know, Buddhists are very adept at is really helpful because it is in a moment um, that we can see it. But if we are not looking for it um, and we don't want to see it, then it's not going to happen. So, you know, in that moment where you see this kid and you, you realize this stereotype is coming up, can you do replacement of that. You know, sometimes I'll ask myself, even in my neighborhood or in my building, you know, if I have if I have that tendency to come up, um, I'll just say, you know, well, maybe he's a Rhodes Scholar. I don't know. You know, <laughs> like we but we make all sorts of assumptions about people based on what they're wearing, you know, wh- how they look that day that we wouldn't necessarily make about someone else. And the Brian points this out in this course. It's not that you have to 
beat yourself up every time it happens. It's just to see that it's happening. Right. Then that, that actually makes it much more doable mm-hmm. because if we're if we're going to be so ashamed that it's happening, you're going to be you're either not going to look or you're going to be in for a lot of suffering. Right. But uh, if you are given permission for it to happen and just the mission is just to see it and maybe not be so captivated by it, that's that's doable. And to to realize we're all affected by it. You know, if if um, if we're talking about race, then white people, a lot of it is around guilt, and and to to realize that that everyone is affected by it. That um, you know, some of the officers that were involved in Freddie Gray's death were black. You know, that they're that we're all internalizing these external systems, and um, but can are we willing to be honest and look at that? What do you think, Canada should be done to? bring this practice that we're talking about, Buddhism, secular meditation, whatever you want to call it, it's got lots of flavors, to make it more attractive to all sorts of people rather than, you know, I haven't seen the data, but my my unscientific polling seems to suggest that it's an overwhelmingly upper middle class white phenomenon at this point. What what can be done about this? You know, I think that there... um there are a lot of different things. I'm, I'm not an expert on how to bring <clears throat> this to the masses, but from what I see, um, you know, there's sort of that secularization that's happening that's bringing it into schools, like with Mindful Schools and um, Holistic Life Foundation and other programs. Yeah, we had Holly uh, Smith on the, on the show. Yeah, yeah. And, and all those programs are doing great work. Um, you know, when we're talking about meditation itself, we're talking about um, the Buddhist teachings and the Dharma. What I see works really well um, is this phenomenon of affinity groups. Um, and and to me, you know, the Buddha is, is supposed to have said to some of his monks, um, teach in the vernacular. You know, there's this question, do we teach in the classical language and keep it pure? Do, you know, some monks are teaching in the vernacular. That seems wrong. And he said, no, teach in the vernacular because um, people aren't going to understand the teachings if you're not speaking to them in a way that's understandable. And so um, this idea that people, uh, everyone is going to understand the way Jack Kornfield teaches the Dharma or, or Joseph Goldstein or, or me, you know, that um, they might need it spoken to them in a different way. There's um, a lot of groups that meet um, around 12 steps. So Buddhist meditation groups that are oriented around um, AA and A, the other 12-step programs. And, and they speak differently in that group. They teach the teachings in a different way um, that's relevant for that community. So people of color groups, um, the Dharma is going to be communicated in a different way that's relevant to those communities. And to not see that as isolationist or, you know, um, uh, a threat, you know, it's also I've heard it be challenged as um, – not in line with the teachings because we're all one. And it's like, yeah, we're all one, and you talk funny. You know, I want to mm-hmm. hear it taught in a mm-hmm. different way. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's important. Uh, I, we all gravitate to teachers who uh, we can relate to. Right. Um, and so it just makes sense. And you have a lot more options if you're white, you know, um, because, pretty, you know, there's, huge, the, the, there's a huge overwhelming majority of white people in the teacher class. Yeah. There's no two ways about it. And that's an emphasis right now also to make sure that we have more teachers, um, teachers of color and um, people from uh, other groups. So I mean, I'm very close with Joseph Goldstein, for example, who runs the, founded the Insight Meditation Society along with uh, other people. But 
You know, I know just uh, – I don't want to come off as an apologist because you can tell me if I'm wrong about this. But I, it seems to be a very high priority for him. And I get the sense from those at the uh, – uh, those in positions of power and responsibility within uh, the Buddhist world that it is on, on their mind and they're, they seem to be trying to do something about it. Am I – giving them too much credit, or do you think I'm right about that, or I'm wrong about that? I think there's more awareness about that now, especially in particular communities. I think, yes, in the insight community, that conversation is very strong, and it's challenging. You know, it's um, this stuff is deeply rooted, and it's rooted in the systems. It's rooted in the institutions and in the structures, and it's going to bring up all sorts of questions around um, how we do everything. So this, uh, for example, and I'm sure Brian will talk about this in the course, we, we talked about it in our segment, um, just the overemphasis on silence. You know, there's so much emphasis on silent practice here. And it is. It's very profound. It's very powerful. There is not the same kind of emphasis in Asia. You know, if, you, if you've ever traveled in, in um, particularly in Southeast Asia, where this tradition, the insight tradition comes from, there's a lot of yakking going on in, in temples and monasteries. And, um, of course, there is a lot of meditation practice, but kind of the preciousness of silence um, here is it might not appeal to people of color, to younger people. Huh. Um, and so to start to understand that it might challenge these things that we've decided is the dharma, is the teachings, but actually are co- culturally constructed as well. That's really interesting. Where can people find out more about you or even contact you if they want? Uh, my website is my name, com. Can you spell it? S-E-B-E-N-E-S-E-L-A-S-S-I-E.com. And you've slowed down. I talked over you. There was a .com there. It's not a .net. Um You've slowed down a little bit, but are you still teaching? You do, I know you were doing coaching. Uh, um, are you yeah. still doing all that? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm starting to teach more again. Um, I'm not going to be doing a whole lot of retreat teaching uh, just because I find the travel challenging. Um, but some, Brian and I are teaching a retreat in May at BCBS, and um, I'll do some teaching here and there. But, yeah, I teach locally, and uh, I coach. Is there anything that you want to talk about that I didn't give you a chance to, anything I should have asked you that I didn't? We covered so much. I feel like I've had a therapy session. <laughs> and I don't even charge. <laughs> okay, before we let you go, an update. Um, in that interview, which we recorded a few weeks ago, uh, you, you heard Seb mention that she was on her way to go get some new tests. So since then, she's gotten the results back, and uh, they were really positive, and she's, uh, she's doing great. Uh, so uh, a huge relief uh, for Seb and for everyone who loves her. So... Uh, a happy ending to this podcast um, and we'll be back next week with more. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. 
Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.